Welcome to the Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. Now, today's show is the second part of the conversation I had with Stuart Lancaster. It's the glue that, that holds the team together, isn't it? It's the trust. And if it's not there, or people don't trust you or you don't trust them, I think that's where you've got problems. The thrill of winning is the enjoyment in the change room afterwards for me. It's the self-satisfaction of knowing that you've contributed to a team's success and watching them enjoy the moment together. He said to me, if you were to retire now, Stuart, would your soul be at rest? And I said, no, it wouldn't. And he said, in which case you need to keep on going. Stuart is currently coaching Leinster Rugby and he's held senior leadership positions at many levels of the game, including being the former England Rugby head coach. In part one, we chatted about the foundations of culture, putting teams together and knowing your own personal strengths and weaknesses. In this week's episode, we jump around a bit again and touch on subjects like managing time and energy, continual learning and the art of teaching. But to kick things off, I asked him what traits best describe him as a coach. Curiosity would be a relevant word. I would say open-minded would be another. Um, I'd say proactive. The other one I would give would be supported. Um, I've been massively supported in my career as a coach by three great mentors, really. Kevin Byron, Head of Coach Development of the RFU, who plucked me from an academy manager and sort of put me on courses and got me as guest coaches or shadow coaches of of teams. Brian Ashton, obviously, who was the National Academy Manager at the time. When we were academy managers, we would have uh, sessions with him and he would check and challenge our thought processes on the game. And then Bill Bezik, the other, who's a, um, a sports psychologist, worked with Manchester United, former basketball coach, who, again, had a real breadth of... And I met him at the Six Nations Coaching Conference, which is something Kevin Barron put me on. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. so that support was really, really important for me. But once I'd got that sort of door opened, I would always be proactive in trying to connect with people who I was really curious to meet. So I'll give you an example. So we went to uh, Australia when the kids were five and six. This is 2005, 2006. And we were going to Sydney. And I was reading uh, Rob McQueen, who was the Australian coach, reading his autobiography. And anyway, I noticed that he lived north of Sydney. And there was an email address for the sort of publisher in the book. I thought, I wonder if I can actually get to Ron McQueen, if, if I can get a hold of the publisher. Anyway, so I managed to get a hold of the publisher, I managed to get a hold of his contact details, emailed about the blue. So I'm like this, well, I was academy manager at Leeds at the time, so he wouldn't have a clue who I was. I turned up in Sydney. Anyway, he invited my wife round, the kids. We had lunch at his house. He talked to me about what he did in terms of building the Australian team um, to be successful in the World Cup. He showed me his like pictures, the the framed uh, shirts on the wall, and you know I was just like, how good was that? That was just one of the best days of my life, you know, as a young coach. But then I realised that if you actually ask people, they rarely say no. That's why I never say I try never to say no to people who ask me, um, because I had so many people say yes, please, yeah, I'd love to have a chat with you. And lockdown, as an example, was just amazing, wasn't it? Because we had um, I had thousands of these conversations. Um, some were created by me, some were um, instigated by them. And, you know, if you're, we can't see all the books here, but I've probably got 100 books in my flat here in Dublin and probably another 200 at home where I'm studying coaches that have, are not even alive. You know, they've passed away, but they've become great coaching or great leaders. They are great coaches or leaders. And uh, I'm studying what made them great and reading their books and studying them and watching YouTube footage of them. That's I just love it. I love I love the conversation with coaches and leaders about leadership and coaching. And I really, really, really do. 
that comes across so much. I've got another story actually about Rod McQueen because when I was Newbury, Newbury coach in the rugby second level championship, we had Joe Marchant's uh, dad was our, was our second team coach and he was also the kit man for Australia or liaison officer and the, they were playing the Barbarians and Rod McQueen was the coach. And so he got me in to watch a training session and Rod said, do you want to go for a walk? He'd heard that I was a young coach. And we walked around the, the pitch and we had this conversation just off his back. For, and one of the things he, I remember as an attack coach, he was telling me, you know, it's depth over width every time. And it stuck with me um, because there was a movement towards having a flat attack. And I was arming an R. And anyway, so, so I, I can see, I can see how, how all of that breeds curiosity one of the things I also see with coaches, when the pressure comes on, that's one of the first things that disappears is their continued learning. Are you able to, when the pressure comes on during the season, do you carry on doing this? The blocker for me for continual learning is just time, I guess. It's never mindset. It's never, it's never I don't want to. It's more I'm just trying to marry the demands of living in Dublin, two kids, you know, wife, trying to connect with their mum on a farm in Cumbria and, and just trying to hit the sweet spot between the two. You know, your family... And your job. I probably have more time than most, to be honest, because I'm, I'm alone a lot in Dublin. You know, my, well, my family live in England and I commute back and forth. So every night I'm on my own. Um, generally, I try and devote time to listening to podcasts, reading books, thinking about stuff, you know, just sh- shutting everything down, preparing for the next day to be the best coach I can be would be a big thing as well. Whereas, you know, if you're at home and you've got a busy, I don't know, family life as well, it's just hard to squeeze everything in. And, um, it's, probably, it's probably circumstantial that I've still got the, the time really um, but it's not by design it's more by just the fact I'm, I'm here It's amazing that you've got that ability to have those little pockets where you can carry on learning and listeners of the pod will get a little bit fed up of me talking about energy but you know the, the phrase you know you can't give energy if you don't have energy there's, there's a really good book out by Sarah Milne Rowe called The Shed um, I think it's called the Shed Theory or the Shed Project. But she was she's worked with exec, ex, as an executive coach with lots of CEOs around the world, and she's seen well what do they all have in common? And she's come up with the Shed Method, and the Shed Method stands for sleep, hydration, exercise, and diet. And so she talks about keeping your shed tidy, you know. And it's a nice it's a nice concept. And I wonder for you then, how do you keep your energy levels high? Because I remember when you were with England. You would be, I'd see you at Twickenham at eight in the morning, whatever, and you would have driven down from Leeds, been up at ridiculous a time, full of energy, like probably had gone to the gym. And, you know, it made me feel very, very, very lazy. And I just like woken up and rolled, rolled out of bed and gone around the corner. You know, how do you deal with your whole energy to keep it consistent? And does it work? You didn't see me at 4pm that day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, it's massive for me. It's massive, you know, because... I, I couldn't agree with you more about if you haven't got the energy, you can't give the energy. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And um, it sounds daft, but little like injury niggles wind me up because I can't coach the way I want to coach. I want to be on the field and enthusing and motivating and behind them and in front of them and living the session with them and bringing it to life for them. So if I've got like a, I don't know, I just saw Achilles for a while. It was driving me absolutely mad because I thought I couldn't be the coach I wanted to be um, or... Like sometimes I've, there's some really awkward flight times. Like I, like the other day, the flight was at 10.15 from Leeds. So it got me into Dublin and we got stuck at the plane for some reason. And then, so I didn't get into bed about to about half 12, you know, just after midnight. And I knew I was up in the morning, you know, it was a big day because we were reviewing the Connacht game and everything else. 
And that sort of stuff just winds me up, really, because, you know, I really want to be at my best for the players. So I'd be, I think I'd be good on the things that you've just described. You know, I don't stay, I don't have a lot of digital time before I go to sleep. I go to bed early-ish. I definitely don't burn the candle at both ends. I like to enjoy my downtime with friends and family, you know, like everyone else would. Um, but when I'm working, I like to look after myself from a sleep point of view. I don't drink during the week. Exercise-wise, yeah, you're right. I'd be up and I'd go to the gym. Because, again, I want to be a coach who can physically run around with the players and I want to set, be a good sort of example, I guess. And diet, again, living on my own here, you know, you can generally buy your own food and look after yourself. So, Abby, if you feel good about yourself and you are fit and healthy, I'm not just talking about being a sporting coach here, like obviously I am, but um, in any organisation, ha- it has to be a thing. I mean, I mean, the, someone described a, a really good analogy about three glass balls you're juggling in your life. So one is your personal health and well-being, which we just talked about, the shed. Um, one is your family and, um, you know, everything that, that surrounds them, supporting them. And the other is your job. And how would you feel if you're juggling these three glass balls and you drop one? So you don't look after your relationship, you know, with your, your wife, your kids or your partner, whoever it is. Um, or you drop the personal one because you've let your diet slip. You've let your, you've drank too much at night, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you just, you, you, it's, it's keeping all three in balance, I think. And that's certainly something I've, appreciated more post doing the national job for sure not that I I, uh, let anything go during that time but I think I definitely try and be more present outside of work with family and friends which is easier said than done when you're national coach of England but um, I do think they say a better version of me to be fair. Do you think you've got good enough trust now in the management group where if you saw one of your management group dropping one of those balls or looking like they were slipping would you help them? Yeah and I think I think to be fair to Leo He's very, very good at that. And I think a lot of the great, like Warren Gatland would say, you know, everyone's, it's family first, isn't it? You know, so if there's ever an issue, rugby will go on. The team will survive. So, you know, I've had various challenges within, like my dad um, got poorly and, you know, there was no hesitation. I was gone, you know, and uh, um, they would, they all just supported me. Um, so, yeah, I'd be very, very mindful of looking for that and, and supporting people because it's, it's the glue that, that holds the team together, isn't it? It's the trust. And if it's not there or people don't trust you or you don't trust them, I think that's where you've got problems. Yeah, that's what I see for the continuous behaviours and creating that right culture is having that trust throughout the organisation. Have you got any tools for people listening to how you might be able to build that trust as a leader? I'm going to ask you some questions in a minute. I'm going to flip the pot on you in a minute. <laughs> no, uh, no. Um, I think to get trust, you need to give trust. But I've been burned which makes it slightly harder to do. I would also like to share something first and show some vulnerability first. And I think that's a good way to building a relationship, to talk a bit about yourself, to talk a bit about some of the challenges you've had, to share a bit personal about yourself, to build that relationship. And it's risky because obviously you're sharing a bit of of you that maybe people don't know or showing a bit of vulnerability, but you're hoping that by doing that, they recognise that and that creates that sort of connection between you and they feel more comfortable opening up to you as well. So, so yeah, that'd be my sort of mindset. And I always, perhaps my wife sometimes would say I was too trusting um, and uh, is naive the right word, probably too strong, but, but um, I would definitely have been burnt once or twice as well. And um, which is a shame, isn't it? Because ultimately it sort of affects you a bit more down the line, you're a bit more guarded and a bit more careful um, because at the top end of high performance sport or business, it's a pretty ruthless game. And there's, there's an element of cynicism in there and an element of what's in it for me and 
I'm going to look after my own back and not worry about your back. Yeah, but you've you've made the connection. You understand that by creating trust in the people that you work with and the athletes that you train, you're going to just raise the standards and raise the quality and, and ultimately the performances will be better. Some coaches don't see the connection between getting to understand the people around you. And what would you tell a coach that says, I don't think that's important. I don't need to know their wife's name and their dog's name and what they've gone through as a, as a, as a kid or how they've got here. It's not important. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say that can definitely work. I mean, I've seen it work. Have you seen it work in long term? That's important. Come and do it. I don't think, I don't think it only does work in the long term. So it depends really. I mean, it depends like some organizations might want that, that quick fix, you know, head honcho comes in and uh, blows everyone away with a pace testing leadership style and demand for excellence and everything else. And, Everyone like falls into line and product productivity goes through the roof. But then is it sustainable? You know, what happens at the end? What happens when he goes or she goes? And then what's what's left? You know, probably everyone's left by then. So there's nothing left. So um yeah, no, I, th- I think, you know, I, I would say I would say to those coaches, that's fine. That's fine. You know, obviously we're all individuals, we're all unique, we all lead in different ways. But you you would like to point out to them that the risks of doing this is that. I think you'll only be successful in the short term. I wanted to mention Owen Eastwood because not only is he brilliant and his book is brilliant, you used him before his book came out. So you were ahead of the curve a little bit. And I've got a question about that. But I remember Owen talking about that, you know, tribes back in the day, their job as leaders, as chiefs was to take you safely from one place to another. Like, you know, and, and now he talks about perhaps the leaders will still take you from one place to another. But if there's human cost, well, that's okay. And, you know, his view is, well, it's not okay. And I think it's probably our view as well, that it's not okay. How did you get to to get Owen involved? Because that sounds quite a visionary move at the time because he's, you know, he was under the radar a fair amount. Well, he was at the time, for sure. Um, I think we met, he's probably going to correct me on this, but he's obviously a sports lawyer to start with. So there's an element of that, but... It was more, I was invited to talk at Leaders in Performance um, and he was on the board, advisory board for Leaders in Performance, whose job it was to try and get people to speak at leadership conferences that hopefully would give some you know, decent messages or some interesting insight. And it was through that I think we started connecting. And I very quickly latched on the fact that this guy, this is way before he'd written a book or way before he'd left even the, the law firm, you know. And I thought he's onto something here. And so this sense of identity and uh, we talked about his work with uh, South Africa cricket team that he'd done. And uh, he showed me the video that they created about the Proteas. Um, and it was such a good video. Uh, and it so uh, connected with me. I just ended up like, we all, we spoke maybe every two or three weeks. I shared my ideas with him. And then I asked him if he would in 2012, 2013, helped me with the identity of England and helped try and articulate it, which is a hard thing to do because, you know, when you're in Ireland or when you're in France or Wales or Scotland, you know, Wales, you know, uh, Ireland, Scotland, etc., you've got this real sense of identity because we've fought for our independence from, from England and everything else. But in England, I, I never really was sure how we could articulate it or what, what, what we stood for. And what he did was... He went and interviewed many, many people from England, from all walks of life, both from former players to former captains and coaches to um, uh, footballers and 
you know, about what it meant to be English. Um, and he created a presentation to me called Silver Rose. And he described the history of England rugby and the history of England as a nation in a way that I hadn't even thought about. I didn't do history too much at school. You know, I wouldn't think, I wasn't thinking too much about any of that type of stuff. So we played about with this with sort of Silver Rose concept, if you like. And then we, we narrowed it down to um, something we thought was digestible for the players. And we invited the players to a meal and the board of the RFU. And Owen presented his thoughts on what being English means. And we invited former players as well. And then it sort of grew from there into, we created a film about what it means to be English, uh, which I think you've seen. And... Uh, we showed it to the players, we showed it to the, the wives and, and, and the partners of the, um, the players, the management team, the board, and there it stopped. Um, I remember having the debate with Sophie Gauchin at the time, who was the chief of most she said, you have to show this film, you have to show it. Um, and this is obviously prior to, this is 2014, 2015 time. Uh, anyway, I decided not to because I felt it could have been potentially a distraction for the team and everything else, so I never actually did, which I think in some ways, is a real shame because the film is so good. It's so powerful. And I only watched it the other day and it's so relevant now. We're talking seven years later. And that is the genius of Owen. The script he wrote, the imagery that he created, the former players that we used and the obviously production company. It was, it was amazing. And I'm sure if it had been released, time, everyone would have gone, wow. Now maybe I was wrong not to, not, and maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe it'll end up on YouTube sometime because it's still on my mind. <laughs> um, but uh, no, he was, he was like, he, he never really, when he talks about the teams he's worked with, he never references England because he's doing that out of respect for me, I think. Um, and he doesn't want to sort of blow his own trumpet, but he deserves a huge amount of credit for helping me understand more and helping the England team at the time understand more about what it meant. Do you use storytelling in your coaching? To a point, to a point. Not, I mean, the, 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 the theming element of coaching. So it's very strong in New Zealand. Um, so we've got Mike Alalato, who's come from the Crusaders, and he's a Samoan captain as well. So he's, I was, I was asking him, um, and we know, because we did a link up with the Crusaders in lockdown, and Scott Robinson was very, very big on theming, and the Kiwis really connect um, with the theming element of, you know, building high performance. I, I tend... Not to, because A, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> um, and B, I actually believe, I, I would do it more, but I believe in getting the coaching bit right first. I want to coach well, do you know what I mean? And I think sometimes we can, and this isn't to knock theming, but I think sometimes we can get too distracted by the theme and not, and not focus on the detail of the coaching, do you know what I mean? And I, and I think there's a sweet spot between the two. Sometimes I see teams think, well, they're telling great stories here and it's about, it's about this and about that and the other, but yeah, but your defence is still like, leaking points and your attack still not like detailed enough to break down modern defences. So, so I think there's a, there's a sweet swap between the two. Um, it's a bit like, you know, you've got, it's a completely different topic, which because we talk about forever. Um, it's a bit like GPS and stats, you know, so you've got on one end of the spectrum, you've got this sort of like theming and emotional connection will play, will play for the, towards the theme and the, and what we're trying to achieve. And the other end, right, we'll play to the stats we'll play to the GPS and we'll measure ourselves by metrics. And then in the middle, you've got sort of the coaching piece. And I'm probably more dead center, I would say. And sometimes I use that and sometimes I use that to drive performance. 
but most of the time I'm, I'm in the center ground. Yeah, and you can't you toggle a bit. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes I use the stats to sort of highlight a point. Sometimes I use a theme to bring an emotion connection to things. The players have found it useful this year. So we have had a theme this year, which has been driven by the playing group, which has been excellent because actually they've owned it and they've brought it to life. And um, that's been backed up by the, um, the video analysts who brought some brilliant imagery. And it has been really good for the group. And I, you know, I definitely wouldn't knock it. I'm definitely engaged in that process. But for me, I wouldn't put it top. I'd put it, I'd put coaching, being a really good coach and creating habits in the players that stick under pressure in high performance would, would still be number one for me. You've also mentioned in the last two minutes, a couple of occasions where you decided not to use something and then now you've used something and that's your gut instinct, right? How do you deal with that? Do you let it let it do its thing or do you do some due diligence? As coaches, sometimes your gut is quite powerful. Often what I do is, I don't know if anyone else does this, um, but you you have a, uh, an embryonic idea in your mind, but I always go to sleep on it. And somehow, whenever I sleep, it seems to like crystallise and I end up coming uh, coming up with the uh, the answer in the morning. So I've, again, I've learned to know myself that sometimes you've just got to shut everything down and think, and usually the ideas come. Going for walks, actually, interestingly for me, is actually quite a good way to do it. We've got two dogs and, uh, you know, definitely back in Leeds, some of the most creative ideas often come when you allow your mind to settle and not have your laptop open. And, um, you know, that's when the, I think the more creative side, I'm not uber creative, but that's when the more creative thoughts come into my mind. I think that comes as well. So like, I know not everyone listening is going to be a coach, but let's say you're a leader. Um, session planning or planning a presentation or planning a meeting. I find it very hard to do that effectively last thing at night. So I, 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 I create a framework of the types of things that I want to be coaching in. And often I've come up with the ideas by the morning. Um, and obviously I'm more alert and more ready to, to action them anyway and create a, a session on the back of it. But that's why I'm a early to bed, early to rise, you know, so the gym, the gym's about half an hour away. So now I've taken on the nice, nice mornings that's got a bit lighter to walk into the gym half an hour Sometimes music on, sometimes podcast on, sometimes nothing on. Gym, walk to work. By then it's 7, 7.30 and I'm like, I've got a whole lot of million ideas running through my head, but I don't think that would have happened uh, last thing at night for me. I've got a connecting question really because I'm doing some work with different teams at the moment on how to know if your athletes have actually taken on board what you've told them. So in football, for example, in possession and out possession and set piece, that's where the changes occur. So there might be a new set piece routine against a certain team. They might play a different defensive shape out of possession than in possession. And they'll have a very short window to be able to change that. And they need to know, particularly like set piece for, you know, have they learnt this movement and do they understand it? And and if not, you know, we then need to find some time, at, you know, before the, this game or not. Have you got any tools or or what's your thoughts on when you think when you're making some change, how do you know they know what, what, you, what you've just asked them to do? Uh, I would say two things spring to mind. Um, check for understanding. So you, you, you would, you would uh, like, we, we, like we're, getting, we're getting beaten in defence because our spacing is too wide. So question to the group, what's the fix? Um, I don't know, tighten the spacing up? I'll go, yeah. And if we tighten the spacing up, we then might create more space on the edge, but you know we'll we'll take that. We can't cover all the bases, so 
if we if we tighten our spacing up and we get good appropriate spacing and we can come up nice and square together and connected, none of the shoulders are turned in, we're nice and square, we can defend left and right, then that, that'll make, mean we're more secure and we've got less chance of being penetrated through the middle. Does everyone understand what I'm saying? And they all go, yeah. Okay, so talk back to me then. Explain back to me what we've just discussed. Johnny, you go first. So you're not waiting for, like, I've picked Johnny, Johnny Sexton, but look, let's get <laughs> someone called Johnny, because uh, he knows all the answers anyway. But, um, you know, you're, you're, it's, Doug Lamoff calls it cold calling and in teaching. So everyone's thinking at the time, he's going to ask me the question, and I need to know the answer. So you're checking for understanding, but you're not just saying, what's the answer? Because then the person knows the answer, always gives the answer, and everyone thinks, thank God he didn't ask me, I didn't know the answer. Um, so you're, you're checking for understanding. So someone doesn't know the answer, like um, they can't t- um, communicate it back to you. The really important point then is that you don't belittle them or you don't make them feel of less value or somehow less effective as a player because, because they don't know the answer. So you create that sort of what people call a psychological safety, safety environment to be wrong, you know what I mean? And, and they usually start by saying, listen, I probably didn't get this right myself in terms of coaching you last week. So I just want to make sure we've got our spacing right this week because, you know, we've got penetrated through the middle. Um, so it's on me, but I just want to check we're all on the same page. So, so the check for understanding piece, I think is really important. And co-calling and asking different people to talk back to you what they see. And, and then you're saying, is everyone with me? Is everyone understanding what we're saying here? Give me, you know, give me thumbs up or whatever, you know. Doug Lamoff, he's got a teacher and it's like two taps um, or what it is, double clicks. And... Um, one of the big things I'll do is um, memory recall. So we do a review on a Monday morning of the game and we take six learning points out of it. So then we train and then we preview the opposition and then Tuesday morning comes along. What's the first question? First question is always going to be, tell me what we talked about yesterday. Tell me what lessons we learned from the game at the weekend. And you can see them all like frantically looking through the notes or trying to recall it in the brain because... Because you know that by making them recall it and ask them to recall it, it becomes hardwired. I can remember that my best mate's telephone number from when we were 10 years old, you know, because you did it that many times. You typed it in your, your well, you did your phone, like the old school ones. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, so, so that recall process, you know, is a really important point in, in creating understanding and, and, and getting it to stick. So, yeah, I think there'd be, there'd be sort of two ways, really, you know, I would, in terms of like, trying to find out whether it's stuck or not. You know, you're obviously recalling information, making sure they get, they get into the habit of reading through the notes because as soon as we receive information, we start forgetting it, don't we? So we need to find a way to, to actively recall it. I, the analogy I gave the players, which is true. So I go to Dublin Airport and park my car in the car park and I would do this maybe twice a week to fly back to Leeds. So every time I park in the car park, I park in a different place because obviously, you know, there's any, I get in any space I can I went for about a year, every time walking out, thinking, Christ, where did I park my car? And I'm spending half an hour walking around the airport thinking, I've got to remember I park my car. So anyway, now, so now I park my car and I walk into the airport. As I'm walking across the airbridge, I always re- re- remind myself, I park my car in this spot here. And I've just logged it into my mind twice, park my car, remember whether I park my car, park my car twice, bang, come back, find my car. You know what I mean? So it's just that ability to recall and trying to, without spoon feeding the players, you're trying to educate them on the basics of, what you get taught as a teacher. That's why, in terms of books, I know you're asking me, uh, the Doug Lemoff book on um, A Coach's Guide to Teaching is, is absolutely excellent. I'm looking at it here. I can see it behind me. I've got a load of books and it's, it's, it's there. Very good. We've mentioned teaching a lot and we're both ex-teachers. 
and a lot of coaches particularly rugby coaches are have got teaching in their background and it's it's often referenced and then skipped over and I wonder if you've got any thoughts on why there's that connection it and is it is it because of what we've learned as teachers or is it because of the of the reasons we wanted to be a teacher in the first place I think it's both I think coaching is a natural extension of teaching personally I think that um, if you have a passion for teaching, then you have a passion for helping people get better. You have a passion for wanting to improve someone regardless of their ability. You know, you want to do good. You want to help people work in a team. You want your form to be connected. You know, you want your school team to enjoy playing sport together. You know, you want your assembly to go well because you want your year group to feel like we're a special year group. Do you know what I mean? And if someone said to me now, you couldn't coach rugby ever again, but you can go back to teaching, I wouldn't have a problem at all. I would be more than happy. So I do think um, you, your passion for teaching, I, I don't think I re- actually had it, interestingly. I don't think I really thought about it doing my degree. I did a sports science degree. I almost fell into the PGCE, really. And it was only when I did my teaching practice that I really began to think, actually, I really enjoy this. But I don't think, if you said to me, 20, do I want to be a teacher? Probably not. I was more interested in doing a dissertation on ACL injuries and reconstruction and, you know, more biomechanical and physiological. So, um, but then once I got into it, I thought, you know, I genuinely really love this. Um, so that then fed into, into coaching. So yes, the passion obviously helps because you know, you love it. And then secondly, the art of teaching that you get to, I was lucky in that the teacher educators who taught me were excellent. Excellent. You know, and I see one of them still now at the gym um, in Leeds, Malcolm Butterworth. Um, and a- anyone who's from Carnegie, his name would be... I-, I know his name and I wasn't at Carnegie, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's amazing, amazing uh, guy. And taught, he taught, taught us how to teach. So I had this sort of really good education. And then you plan a session on a Monday morning. So you've got five lessons a day. You've got basketball first, then you've got badminton, then you've got hockey, and then you've got cross country, and then you've got gymnastics. Plan, planning session. You do the session, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, right? We're doing, I don't know, the layup in basketball, we're playing some zone defence, and then we're going to do the overhead clear and drop shots and play some round-the-court badminton games. Uh, and then hockey, we're going to play some, like, mini-games. and da, da, da. So you plan, do, review, plan, do, review, plan, do, review, plan, do, review, five times a day, five days a week, repeat, 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 45, 40 weeks of the year at a state school. So you just, and you make horrendous errors. <laughs> you know, you, 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 over, you overcook your session plan, you're... You, you make it too challenging, you make it too easy, you get them too excited and they all go off the walls and you can try to bring them back under control or it's too dull and they just start messing around. You can't differentiate so that the talented ones don't get motivated and the ones who are struggling a bit get demotivated. You know what I mean? So you just make so many errors, but you subconsciously begin to learn during the course of the first year, the second year, the third year, you know, how to get the best out of people and you learn what to do, what not to do. And I think it's a great foundation to go into life, never mind um, coaching. I've got some questions on those books and and quotes, but um, one thing that you just mentioned about teaching and what helping people become their best version. And and if rugby suddenly said to you tomorrow, rugby, to all right, sorry, we've, we're shutting down rugby and it's, it's teaching for you, Stuart. Do you get your pleasure then when you're watching the teams and you're watching over the, and you're coaching over the season? If you had to have that continuum between winning and players improving, and I don't just mean 
passing and tackling, I mean players holistically improving, you know, becoming better people and more and more understanding. Where do you get your real thrill from? It's a really good question because the thrill of winning is the enjoyment in the change room afterwards for me. It's the self-satisfaction of knowing that you've contributed to a team's success and watching them enjoy the moment together and the shared experience. And it's the quiet beer. It's the music in the change room. It's the going on the holiday at the end of the season and enjoying your holiday because you know that you've, you've helped the team deliver under pressure. Do you know what I mean? So someone said to me, what's better, the thrill of winning? Uh, what, what's, what's more motivational? Striving to win or the avoidance of the pain of losing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, motiv- and it's true because the pain of losing, the pain of losing, oh, you know, it's just like, um, and losing in big games, in big moments. You know, I've had, we've had five trophy wins at Leinster, fortunately. Um, but we've also lost in two semi-finals, a quarter-final, and a final. Um, and with England, you know, we won four out of five Six Nations games in every four in, in every year, but we never won the title once. And obviously, you know, the World Cup experience as well. So I remember winning the Yorkshire Cup with the academy against Wharfdale. And I remember how good that felt. I remember winning the championship with Leeds and how good that felt when we beat Otley. And uh, I remember losing in the first game of the Premiership against Gloucester by... Leslie Van Aculler scored five tries. And uh, I remember them all. And what um, it's, 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 the, it's the pull of wanting to be in the change room at the end. It's the push away from the pain of losing, you know, is one thing. Um, but also, I get as much enjoyment of seeing the translation of what we've done on the coaching field uh, culminating a try or culminating an excellent defensive set or culminating an unbelievable performance from the tier two players who are not, who are playing because the internationals are away and we've gone away and we've beaten a really difficult opponent away from home. And these young lads have really risen to the task. So that's really driving for me as well. Do you know what I mean? So it's both really. And that's why I'm looking to be at Leinster because I've had a lot of those moments. Well, like, to be fair, and I had a lot with England as well. So it's not just like it was all bad. You had a few, you had a few at Leeds as well. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you, I don't know if you realise that my last game of rugby was we were both coaching in that division at the time and I was with Newbury. We were playing Leeds at Headingley. One of our players had got ill and couldn't make the bench. And I think we had a sending off and I was chatting to you in the stand because you were well ahead of us, 20 or 30 points ahead of us. And I saw one of the players go down and I was like, oh man, I've got to go on the field because I had to put myself on the bench. <laughs> and I said, sorry, Stuart, I'll be with you in a moment. I'll be seeing you in a minute. And I ran down to the bottom, got my tracksuit off, ran on the field got a cut knee, missed a tackle, dropped a ball, and that was the last time I played rugby. Don't add in bring your creation and help bring your creation to an end. That's it. Well, it, it could be worse, I guess. <laughs> for, for then, for like we talked about books a lot, and have you got any books that, that you've enjoyed the most and why or anything that you're reading at the moment? I've said, I've said this book a million times, and so I don't want to say it because I know everyone probably who's listening who heard me going to say, He's not going to say Bill Walsh to score, take care of himself, but that is one, definitely. Um, but I would say any sporting book that has a, a story of leadership within it or lessons for leadership in, outside of sport is something I'm always drawn to. So if I'm looking now here, I'm looking at Rick Charlesworth's book, uh, World's Best. John Wooden's is there, just to my right, um, the, his, his leadership books. Um, you know, Jim Collins, Good to Great. Any of these books that are about leadership, building high-performing organisations, ideally involved with coaches who've been involved in top-end sport, I, I always get drawn to. Um, and uh, 
there are plenty there are plenty out there you know that um any of the sort of um books that are about the ability to inspire and improve your communication like kevin murray's books uh, communicate to inspire very good uh, john maxwell's books on and his 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 lessons about how to inspire and motivate people owen eastwood's obviously you know on the belonging piece was was an excellent book or is an excellent book you know so john gordon's books i find a very good there's there's loads really and um I like the autobiographies of sporting greats who don't just tell me their the story of their life because I know the story of their life. I want to know the insight of what made them tick and what what, what got the best out. I'm not interested in the the tales out of tour books, really. I'm more interested in the insight about what makes the great coaches great, what makes the great players great, and which often probably leads me on to, you know, what films and what documentaries. I'm always drawn to those documentaries or those series that are giving you an insight into a high-performing organization as well. So, you know, the all or nothing America's game, even last chance you really, I'm intrigued by that watching young kids trying to achieve in sport and some mad coach <laughs> trying to control these kids. And, um, you know, the Michael Jordan ones, you know, all that, all that sort of stuff. I, I, I love all that. Um, that, that'd be my sort of go-to bucket list of, of series and, and books really yeah and do you ha- do you have a quote that uh, you have a favorite quote i'd say john wooden's um success is the peace of mind knowing that you've become the best of what you are truly capable of becoming so a guy called um dave hadfield who's a sports psychologist from new zealand yeah i know dave yeah uh, yeah really good guy and um we were chatting away and again he'd be sort of someone i've spoken to in the past i've actually met in new zealand and he said to me if you were to retire now, Stuart, would your soul be at rest? And I said, no, it wouldn't. And he said, in which case you need to keep on going. Um, <laughs> and uh, because what would help my soul be at rest when I'm 75 or have a lot older, get to and I retire? Um, and it would be the self-satisfying knowing of becoming the best I've truly capable of becoming. You know, I want to stretch myself. I, you know, I want, obviously, I love Leinster and I love the environment I'm in. The challenge of coaching England was huge. You know, I still feel I've got more, more in me. I enjoyed, I enjoy the LinkedIn piece. You know, I've got like loads of connections by just sharing content and trying to pass on what you've learned. I find very rewarding, motivating. I mentor now in the way that I was mentored. I mentor, or not mentor officially, but would speak to quite a few of the younger coaches in the premiership. I'm sure you're the same, you know, as we've got older, you've got experience to pass on. I find that rewarding. And I'd like ultimately to sort of spread my wings a bit, really family permitting, you know, into different, as many different environments as I can coach overseas, you know, outside of the UK and Ireland. I'd love to do that and be like a force for good if you can. You know, it sounds a bit grand, I know, but, you know, be like just a force for good and try and help influence. Like I look at what Gareth Southgate is doing with the England football team. And I think he's done a great job, you know, and um, that that type of, way in which sport can influence and help people that would help and, and I guess in the end if once I finish coaching become a great Brian Ashton type person coach developer Kevin Barr and Bill Bezik who inspires people and passing on what you've learned and then my soul will be at rest and also the I'd feel like I've, I've worked hard to become the best I can, I'm capable of becoming Success is the peace of mind which is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing you did your best to become the best you are capable of becoming. 
it's a brilliant quote and it can also frame a lot of what we do when we are holding ourselves to account. It's easy for us to blame others for not getting the job you want or the place in the team you think you deserve or vice versa when someone shows you the door that you aren't ready to exit. But that's not having a growth mindset and it helps nobody. Self-reflection is a great thing to work on. And this quote, well, it made me think about these questions afterwards. You know, how far are you from maximising the talent, skills and experiences you have? Where is the shortfall? Why are you or aren't you there? And how do you bridge that gap or stay and enhance where you are? Satisfaction and contentment can come in bucket loads from achieving success. But those buckets can also get riddled with holes when you know you haven't fulfilled your potential within the constraints of what you can control. You can't always make someone hire you or vote for you or follow you. But you can use everything in your power to give it your all. Nothing bad comes from that, in my opinion. I'm not a believer in luck. It's all about being prepared for the opportunities that come your way. And they always will come your way. When they do, if you feel you're working to your best levels, then I'm pretty sure some great things will happen off the back of them. Okay, that's enough of me sounding like a evangelist, but I hope you get the point and it makes you think a little bit about how you self-reflect. Again, a huge thanks to Stuart for these two shows. It's been brilliant. I love chatting to him and I've had some great feedback already and I'm sure there's more to come after this one. All of the books and resources Stuart and I mentioned will have the necessary links in the show notes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. If you haven't clicked the follow button, please do so you'll be notified when the next podcast episode is available. And it'd also be great if you could rate and review the show. From the stats, we can see that an unbelievable 70% of you make it all the way through to the end of each episode. So if you're one of those, please take those next steps I've just outlined. And if you'd like to reach out to me, fill in the form on my website or contact me through the socials. This has been the Culture and Performance Podcast with Ben Ryan. Thanks for listening.